Hello everyone and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. I cannot destroy ideas. And for me, I have to talk to everybody who accepts the idea of two states. What is Israel's exit plan from Gaza? Former security chief Ami Ayalon joins me. Then, Britain says it could formally recognize a Palestinian state and how it's helping its most powerful ally as the U.S. struggles in the Middle East. I'll speak with Parliament's top foreign affairs official, Alicia Kearns. Also ahead. My worst fears are a living nightmare for those who are living in Gaza. Over 1,000 black pastors are pressuring President Biden to call for a ceasefire. Reverend Frederick Haynes tells Michelle Martin about their campaign. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiane Amanpour in London. Pressure is mounting for Israel and Hamas to make that deal for hostage and prisoner swaps and a pause in the fighting. But Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu continues to reject key Hamas demands. I hear talk about all kinds of deals. I would like to make it clear. We will not conclude this war without achieving all of its goals. We will not withdraw the IDF from the Gaza Strip and we will not release thousands of terrorists. None of this will happen. Meantime, heavy fighting continues in Gaza's Khan Yunis area, forcing nearly 200,000 Palestinians to flee, according to the UN. My next guest knows the security and diplomatic maze there very well. Ami Ayalon was head of Shin Bet, Israel's internal security service, and he's been pushing for negotiations for a two-state solution. And in a rare interview, he joined me from Haifa. Ami Ayalon, welcome back to our program. Thank you very much. So from your perspective, as a long-time military and intelligence, you know, chiefs and operatives and experience, is Israel winning this war? Well, it's very, very difficult to give you um, a, a short and clear answer because uh, since we do, not, we, we do not discuss the day after, meaning we do not discuss the essence of victory, so if I cannot define victory, um, I'm not sure that anybody can tell you that we are winning something that we don't know exactly where we are heading. So uh, we have great achievements on the ground in the battlefield, uh, but there is a huge gap between uh, winning the battle and winning the war. Mm -hmm. So uh, unless we shall decide exactly uh, on the day after or what is the meaning of victory in this war against Hamas? Um, I cannot give you um, a clear answer. Okay, well, that's important I, to hear from you because, you know, none of us have that answer and it hasn't been stated by your government. So what I want to then ask you is the mission, the mission, according to your government, is to defeat Hamas on the battlefield and to rescue the hostages, the remaining hostages. My question is, can that be something that happens at the same time? Can a military operation rescue the hostages and defeat Hamas at the same time? Uh, of course, uh, there are two views. Uh, one is the only way to persuade Hamas uh, to, uh, to give back the hostages uh, is to create a military pressure 
Uh, and the other is that uh, they, uh, they will choose, in this case, uh, uh, what we call a uh, Samson option. Uh, and, and we shall lose uh, all, all of them. OK, so let me put it another way then. Um, let, let's just talk about this ceasefire negotiations. As far as we can gather and or pause hostage deal, I don't know, you know, there are many different ways to describe it. As far as we can gather, the idea would be to get all your hostages, the remaining hostages out uh, in return for some formulation of releasing a lot of pa Palestinian prisoners, plus some kind of pause. They've talked about six weeks or, or two months even. What is your opinion on a pause? What would that do on the ground? Um, I don't have any view about it, uh, unless, unless I know where are we going on the day after. If uh, the package is exactly what you said, and on the day after, uh, we shall create a framework of future of two states, uh, I will vote for it. Uh, but if, uh, you know, uh, the future or the later, the day after, uh, will be, um, you know, ceasefire for one month, three months, whatever. Um, I know exactly that without uh, a framework of two states, uh, Hamas will not be destroyed. Hamas will flourish again. And of course, the, all, uh, the, 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 the major goal of br bringing back all the hostages. But we have to understand this war is on two fronts. One is the battlefield. But the other is a war of ideas, and Hamas will be defeated only on the second front, the war of ideas. The major defeat for Hamas is a future of two states. And unless we shall discuss the future of two states, there is no way to defeat Hamas and to create a better political horizon for Palestinians and for Israelis. But your prime minister, even yesterday, was out in the field saying, no, 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 we will not. Uh, you know, agree to a two-state solution, even though the United States, his main ally, is saying this must be, and all the Arab states who he wants to normalize with say this must be. So who's going to win this battle on the exit strategy and the day after? Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great question. Of course, I believe and I hope uh, that we, when I say we, is the people, it is the majority of the people of Israel, Netanyahu today do not represent more than 20% of the Israelis. Um, but, you know, in democracy, uh, we shall have to go to elections. So um, today, and we know it because we have polls, and this is the most that we can do, um, 70 or 70% of the Israelis would take the, the package that you offered um, if all the hostages will be brought back uh, and we shall have a ceasefire or whatever you call it. Uh, and we shall have to, you know, release Palestinian hostages. But again, they will accept a future reality of two states. My prime minister do not represent the Israeli people. And unfortunately, uh, you know, he's leading us and we shall have to wait uh, until reserves will come back. And, um, and we shall take to the streets. And we shall explain in many, many actions and words uh, what we, the Israeli people, do really want. And hopefully uh, we shall have elections in a few months and, um, and we shall find the right, uh, the right way to, uh, 
to a better future. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you what you think, because you've written about mm -hmm. this and you've talked about it, what is the biggest misconception that your government has, and maybe a lot of Israelis have, about Palestinians? You've talked about misconceptions. Right. Uh, there are uh, um, two levels of, uh, first of all, on the political level, level uh, the misconception was uh, led by Netanyahu during the last 14, 15 years uh, when he was in power. Um, and uh, we call it uh, managing the conflict or shrinking the conflict, whatever you call it. Uh, the idea was that we have to uh, rule and separate, meaning uh, we have to make sure that Hamas uh, will stay in power in Gaza. And in order for, for, to do it, uh, he increased or he, um, he empowered the power of Hamas, uh, letting uh, Qatar to send money and, and uh, you know, doing everything in order for Hamas to stay in power. And uh, on the same way, to decrease the power of Abu Mazen, because Abu Mazen do not believe in violence. So Palestinians, the perception of Hamas in the eyes of Palestinians, although most of them do not, do not accept the theology or the religious ideology of Hamas, they see Hamas as the only organization who fight for their freedom. So most Palestinians, you know, left Abu Mazen. Today, Abu Mazen will not get more than 15% of support among Palestinians. And this was a misconception because the idea that we can control the level of violence by Hamas is something that we do not understand. We, you know, it's, it's not understanding the idea of Hamas. Hamas is an organization. It's not only a military organization. Hamas leading an idea of a greater Palestine from the Jordan to the sea during the 90s, they did not get support from more than 15% of the Palestinians because finally Palestinians want a better future and they accept the reality of two states. So this was empowering Hamas, decreasing the power of Palestinian authority on the political level. On the intelligence level, uh, again, uh, the idea that Hamas is deterred was a huge mistake because I used to say uh, we measure hardware and they measure software. Meaning we saw after May 21 uh, that when they suffered a major defeat on the on the military ground uh, because they lost many combatants and, and uh, terror activists and uh, and military infrastructure. But they doesn't care. What they do care mm -hmm. is the support of the Palestinian people, and we saw that after this military defeat, the support of the Palestinian people was doubled. Mm -hmm. So uh, the idea that Hamas is deterred and they will not attack, you know, um, brought us to believe that, uh, okay, uh, if they will not attack, we moved all our troops to the West Bank and uh, to the north. And, um, and, and this is what brought mm -hmm. to the horrible events of the 7th of October. Mr. Ayalon, it's really interesting you to, to hear you sort of analyze this. So I want to ask you, do you believe, you've talked about Hamas as an idea, do you believe that in the day after that you envision the two-state, uh, you know, elections, all of that, both in Israel and on the Palestinian side, that Hamas, the idea, uh, the political Hamas, will have any role in a future solution? Or do you see them... Go ahead, tell me. No, no, of course. I, I mean, I cannot destroy ideas. 
And for me, I have to talk to everybody who accepts the idea of two states. If Hamas wants to play a political role, first of all, he will have to agree to the, all the, you know, uh, uh, to the decisions of the PLO, uh, because the PLO is the re- representative of the Palestinian people, and he will not be accepted to the Palestinian people uh, unless he accepts the resolutions, UN resolutions, Security Council resolutions, and the idea of two states, which Palestinians, majority of Palestinians and majority of Israelis can live with. So uh, once he accepts this concept, you know, we, I have to remind myself and to you, uh, we have uh, about 15% uh, of um, fundamentalist, radical uh, Jewish supremacy, racism, whatever you call them, uh, they believe exactly as Hamas believe that this land uh, we, we, it belongs to God and, and we are not allowed to give it to anybody. And it is the same for Hamas. Uh, you know, they speak in, in, in the language of Islam and we speak in the language of Judaism, but there's a two minorities. You know, the tragedy of the region that during the last 24, 20, 30 years, the two minorities led us to kill each other. You know, um, Jewish terrorists assassinated our prime minister and, um, and, and a Palestinian Hamas terrorist, you know, um, you know, killed our civilians. But finally, there are two minorities, less than 20% of both sides. And we, the majority of the two sides, with the role, the major role of the international community, and today, especially today, when... You know, President Biden is perceived as the ultimate leader because he filled a, a, a vacuum of leadership in Israel. And uh, I believe that he has, at least in the eyes of the Israelis, um, the political power to lead us to the right way. And the right way is the reality of two states. That is so interesting you say that because every time he can, Prime Minister Netanyahu rejects anything that President Biden is saying in this regard. But one final question. You are a former naval you know, leader as well. And I wonder what you think and how you think the whole shebang in that area, whether it's Houthis firing, whether it's the US and the UK trying to stop them firing, whether it's just you know, the Iranians and their proxies and Hezbollah. And is, where do you see this heading? Are you afraid that it's really going to explode into a much wider war? Yeah, if I'm worried, I'm worried. I'm not afraid. You know, fear is not a strategy. So. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, but I'm worried. We have to be very careful. Um, you know, finally, finally, it is not a conflict between Palestinians and Israelis anymore. It is a regional conflict and in some aspects um, with global uh, impact. We have to create an opposite coalition led by Europe, America, a coalition of stability, meaning UN, Europe, America, uh, and in the region, uh, led by Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, uh, Emirates, Morocco, uh, and Israel to confront the axis of instability. So, and I think that what we see in Babel Mandeb is part of it, but the whole picture. Mm-hmm. Again, we have to be part, we Israelis, we have to be a legitimate member in this coalition of stability, and we cannot do it unless we choose, we choose the reality mm-hmm. of two states. 
It, uh, it, I really hear you, and I think that um, you clearly want to get that message out. You've done almost no interviews since... Uh, in fact, I think this is your second interview only since October 7th, and you want to make clear that there needs to be an exit strategy with a political solution. Can I ask you a slightly more local question? There is a big crisis right now with the UN agency that has been designated to look after Palestinian refugees, UNRWA. Uh, as you know, the US and others have suspended funding. The Israelis have shared intelligence that suggests, you know, I don't know how many, but, but many uh, are, are, have been involved in October 7th. So that is a horrible thing. But my question to you is, what is the option to UNRWA? Is Israel going to provide the aid? Does UNRWA need to be disbanded? What is the future of trying to, you know, cater to the needs of the Palestinians in Gaza? Well, I, I totally, I, first of all, I totally agree with, you know, uh, we have to stop um, what, what uh, UNRWA is doing now during the last, I don't know, several years. Uh, we just saw it now. Um, I believe that Israel do not have any interest and I don't think that we have the, you know, uh, the legitimacy to do it um, in the eyes of the Palestinians, or, uh, and it will not be supported by the Israelis. I think that the UN, uh, with the support of the, the donors to UNRWA, uh, will have to find uh, another framework, okay. organization. And I know that there are several other international organizations uh, who should do it. Um, I don't know enough about UNRWA itself okay. and whether UNRWA itself can, you know, repair this, this horrible, uh, you know, uh, intervention in, in what happened during the 7th of October. So um, I, I really believe that we should not oppose. It is very, very important for us uh, that the, the people who suffer in Gaza uh, will get their support. Um, the last thing that we can say is that we want to see is a humanitarian disaster. Uh, and unfortunately, if we should not do something about it, uh, this is exactly what we shall see. Ami Ayalon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts. And as Prime Minister Netanyahu continues to resist the idea of a Palestinian state, Israel's allies keep applying the pressure. Britain's Foreign Secretary David Cameron has even said they'll consider recognizing a Palestinian state, a move he believes would help make a two-state solution, quote, 
an irreversible process to end this war. The UK is also playing a key role defending the Red Sea against the Houthis. Cameron is currently on his fourth visit to the Middle East, consolidating Britain's role as a key US ally in this crisis. Alicia Kearns is chair of the UK's Foreign Affairs Committee in Parliament and recently returned from a visit to Washington. And she's joining me now live in the studio. Welcome to the programme. Thank you so much. Um, let me first ask you about, about uh, what the Foreign Secretary said, mm. former Prime Minister. So he is known around the globe and he doesn't say things off the cuff. And he said it to a, to a private reception of Arab diplomats. Mm. Can you tell us, were you surprised that your government in the form of the Foreign Minister went this far? It's the first time that the British have ever said that. So I hadn't expected it and I don't think many people could say they had. For me... Oh, we've seen a real change in tone, attitude and behaviour from the British government since David Cameron came back as Foreign Secretary. And he would have known full well the weight of those words that he said only um, last night, the night before. The question is, does he mean it? Are we genuinely moving to that posture in that position? Or is he using it to say to the Israelis, we still have tools in our toolbox, we will move to this place that you don't want us to, but fundamentally, I think it's the right move. And I think in the same way as that anyone who would deny Israel statehood should be condemned, anyone who should deny Palestinians the right to their statehood should also be condemned. And there's a lack of balance, I think, too often on that. L let me read this specifically. This is what he's written uh, in, in the Mail on Sunday. We must give people of the West Bank and Gaza the political perspective of a credible route to a Palestinian state and a new future, future. And it needs to be irreversible. This is not entirely in our gift, but Britain and our partners can help by confirming our commitment to a sovereign, viable Palestinian state and our vision for its composition. And crucially, we must state our clear intention to grant it recognition, including at the United Nations. So as I've been saying, you know, the the Israeli Prime Minister publicly has been, you know, saying, no, we don't want that. But just for people who don't understand the subtlety of what Cameron has said, because generally the West accepts a two-state solution, what's the missing piece that he's filling in now? The missing piece is giving Palestinian statehood, so recognising Palestinian statehood, which is something the UK hasn't done, a number of our allies haven't. So what he is saying United is States full, haven't. the United States absolutely haven't. So what he's saying is full recognition, not just by the UK, but also he's saying the UK will lead an effort at the UN to see them recognise. And that must mean that he's had a conversation with the United States behind the scenes because we would need them to come alongside. So I think it's quite a big announcement. It's a big policy shift. Mm -hmm. And that will have a very strong impact on all the international relations that are going on. But it's the sort of big shift I want the UK to be leading on. We are good at hardcore diplomacy. We are the right people to be delivering that message. And, and just, to, just to point out what you say, it's the first time, and then the PLO representative here, in other words, the group that actually recognizes yes. Israel, the Palestinian Authority, um, he says, this is a very significant moment in relation to what Cameron said. This is the first time a UK foreign secretary does say that the recognition of the state of Palestine is not linked to a final agreement with Israel, i.e. finally removing Israel's veto over Palestinian statehood. Is that a correct interpretation? I mean, you've got to have Israeli buy-in, don't you? So we do need Israeli buy-in, but at the same time, no state has the right to determine the sovereignty of another. Um, and that unfortunate position we're in, and we cannot allow irredentism to play a role, but we also can't allow Israel to say that the Palestinians have no right to their own homeland. If we believe in a two-state solution, it follows that we therefore recognise and will recognise Palestinian statehood. 
But that second piece has been missing from the puzzle. So this is an enormous shift. Hassan is absolutely right to say that. And now let's hope that we see other partners around the world move in the same way. It's really interesting because it seems to be almost coming to a head in the last couple of weeks. The Americans are talking about it. Now Cameron has, has advanced it. You've had the Europeans and even Israelis who are not in the government. You just heard former Shin Bet chief Ami Ayalon. I mean, he basically said that we can't even judge what's going to happen next because we have not had an exit plan delivered by the government. And the only thing that is going to make Israel and Palestinians safe, secure, and, and eliminate anything like October 7th again is a political resolution and a two-state solution. So that's also gaining quite a lot of traction in certain quarters in Israel. I suspect, actually, in quite significant quarters within Israel. I mean, we have to remember this was a government who, for, what, 37, 38 weeks, had 100,000 people, Israelis, out on the streets campaigning against Netanyahu. Uh, he, this is the most ultra-Orthodox, far-right government that we have seen in Israel for a long time. So there's not a real surprise that there is a real shift when it comes to this. But also, in terms of that diplomatic will, too many of the conversations I've had over the last few months have been about the day after, not how we get to the day after. Yeah. And this takes us to a better place of understanding how we shift that way, as well as, and I'm really pleased because I've been asking David Cameron to do this since November, the progress towards a Palestinian contact group. That what does that mean? Need. So essentially bringing together a cohort of international partners. So obviously we're looking at the US, the UK, the EU, and then particularly Arab countries. This has to be an Arab-led solution who come together to work towards a diplomatic solution. I worked on the Syria contact group. But for me, what we haven't seen yet that I would love to see is those track to negotiations. Yeah. So activists, academics, women, young people, take the politicians out of the room. I know as a politician, it may sound ironic that I'm saying that, but bring together those track to groups of people who will talk about what their vision is for the future without politicians who too often, as we see with Netanyahu, are really performing for a very narrow base. I just want to read you a quote that I keep coming back to, and for me, it's the heart of the issue. It essentially is the chief Palestinian negotiator and the chief Israeli negotiator around Oslo. And at one of the meetings, the Palestinians said, um, uh, this is Abu Allah, as you know, we have learned that our rejection of you, to his Israeli counterpart, will not bring us freedom. You can see that your control of us will not bring you security. We must live side by side in peace, equality and cooperation. So that was, you know, back, you know, in the, the mid 90s. And it's still the truth, correct? I mean, yeah. you, do you see any other way to bring Israel the security it needs and the Palestinians the freedom and statehood they need? Because even yesterday, Prime Minister Netanyahu was out in the West Bank. I think he was saying, never going to agree to this deal. You are absolutely right. And it is heartbreaking that something can be so present today that was being said in the 1990s. You cannot bomb an ideology out of existence. How many times have we tried that over the last two decades? The only way that you reduce the radicalising narrative, and let's not forget the treatment of the Palestinians has been the number one radicalising narrative for every terrorist group pretty much in the world that come from an Islamic background. Um, we have to have long-term security and peace. But it's not just about the diplomatic, how Israel prosecutes this war, and I wish they'd called it a counter-terrorism operation, how they prosecute it will also determine that stability, mm -hmm. which is why we need to see such a shift. And the language we continue to see from the Israelis is not bringing us closer to a solution where there is stability for all. What is happening, as far as you know, inside Gaza? I know Britain has some humanitarian activity there. You're trying your best. You have just publicized something that was little known, mm. and that is one of your hospitals was attacked? Yeah. 
So there's a UK charity called Medical Aid for Palestine. They've been delivering phenomenal yeah, MAP. on the ground. Yes, MAP, as well as bringing in British doctors. So on the 22nd of December, MAP told the UK Defence Forces, who then confirmed it with the Israeli Defence Forces, that they had this building in Al-Watasi, which is a safe zone. The Israelis have declared it a safe zone. And yet, despite having been told on the 22nd of December by the IDF, via the UK Defence Attaché, that it was a protected site, demarcated, the Israelis knew what it was and it was completely humanitarian in nature, on the 16th of January, it was bombed by an F-16 Israeli jet and there were four British doctors inside. Now, we are very lucky that they were hurt and not killed. But obviously, as you can imagine, MAP have now had to remove their operations. The IRC shared that site. So I've also been speaking to David Miliband about this, who's very concerned. Both MAP and the IRC are saying we cannot take any foreign doctors back into Gaza now. It is not safe because despite the IDF giving us reassurances that this site completely isolated, there are no neighbouring buildings around it. It's surrounded by sand, so there's no feasibility that there were tunnels underneath. Despite having confirmation it was demarcated, it was still bombed. And did you, you know, did you bring this up with the idea? So I've raised this so far with our government and I've said to Andrew Mitchell, the Deputy Foreign Secretary, what are we doing about this? I know it's been raised at the highest levels with the Israelis. The Israelis are saying, let us do an investigation. I think now is the time for the UK to be very clear. That part time has passed. The UN are meant to be doing an investigation. I'd like to see the results of that as well. But ultimately, it's very difficult to see how this can be justified in any way, sense or form. A safe zone, a demarcated humanitarian building, UK and US charities. And, and what does that mean? I mean, we know how dire the situation is. We get reports quite regularly from, from, the, from our producers and correspondents in the region who are able to call into Gaza, get pictures, talk about the health crisis there, the humanitarian crisis. What does it mean not to have those British doctors there? It's an enormous crisis because what it means is four fewer doctors, and actually it's not just those four, they've withdrawn all their foreign staff who were providing urgent medical aid and expertise. All of them have been withdrawn and they cannot put them back now because they cannot trust that any of their staff will be safe. So you have no foreign staff from those charities currently on the ground, certainly from MAP. So essentially they need the reassurances that they can operate again because they're desperate to go back in and help because, as you say, the health crisis is so severe. But in terms of Israeli targeting, and I have raised this with both Rishi Sunak and David Cameron, what are the targeting procedures that the Israelis are following? We should have asked to see it. We want to know what their civilian casualty, collateral ca casualty uh, percentage is. But this target in specifics, how could they have signed that off? Because as you and I know, lawyers sit in the room for every single airstrike. So what lawyers signed this off? So you speak as a British parliamentary, you know, committee head. This is, this is not just me talking no. to an analyst. How much does it trouble you that the Israelis have a major problem with UNRWA, the UN organization that is designed to help with uh, relief in Gaza for the Palestinians, that they have shared intelligence mm -hmm. and the Brits have also suspended funding that a certain number of them, we don't know how many, they said 12 first, now they say maybe 10% of yeah. the 13,000 members are Hamas and some of them, some 12 or so, actually contributed, operated, conducted uh, really terrible things on October 7th. 
if UNRWA staff committed anything to those crimes against humanity, that is an enormous betrayal of trust, not least of the UN, but for their fellow Palestinians. How dare they put at risk an organisation that is working to bring aid? The State Department said only today, no organisation is better placed or is delivering aid more effectively than UNRWA. UNRWA have now said they will run out of aid by the end of February if they do not get more support because they're being defunded. I actually raised this question myself with the head of UNRWA in November when I met with him in person in Parliament and I challenged him on the security clearances and checks they were doing for their staff. He was confident that there were regular checks taking place because this is a question that the British Parliament has been discussing for a while around textbooks and also just delivery of aid and participation with Hamas. They are operating in a very difficult environment but that's why the UN needs to finish this investigation as quickly as possible, make sure it is independent as we understand it will be and then we need to make sure that aid is getting back into Gaza because otherwise... I mean, the charges are really serious. They're incredibly against serious. Against that dozen. They are absolutely serious. And if those people are guilty, they need to be go through a criminal prosecution. But the problem is that if UNRWA isn't there del delivering aid and the State Department said no one else can pick up that space in the way that they were, we risk being, I believe, in breach of our ICJ interim ruling, which said that Israel has to allow sufficient aid in and there are repercussions for all of us with our responsibility to protect... But also there is an active crisis going on the ground. We cannot allow collective punishment and we cannot allow people not to get the aid they need. So we're in a very difficult position. We can have no truck for those who had anything to do with Hamas or defended them. But at the same time, we do need to get aid in. And the entire organisation is not broken. I think it's important we don't allow certain narratives on those who want to push that to achieve. On a different issue, but equally important... The Ukrainians continued attempt to defend themselves against Russia's, against Russia's invasion. You've just come back from the United States. Did you get any sense that the politicians in, in the House are going to, you know, unfreeze this, this military aid? So I came back with a slightly complicated pitch, which was actually more support for Ukraine than you might believe from the outside. And I thought it was interesting. We went to six chairs of foreign affairs committees from six different European countries, all of us with the message that we in our media, in our countries, in our political systems are discussing that we think you're going to cash out. You're not going to stand steadfast behind Ukraine. Actually, support for Ukraine remains incredibly high on the Hill. However, they are willing to exchange that support for their domestic political arguments. And of course, this is all about the border. They don't want more money from Biden because he's agreed that. They want a change in policy on the border when it comes to immigration. So I was left with more confidence they support Ukraine but the fact that they're willing to compromise that for personal gain, that is not something you would see in the UK. That's interesting. I'm going to ask you a bit more about that. First, I'm going to play, because today also the head of the uh, NATO is there, yes. uh, the Secretary General. This is what he said about this freezing of the aid. When I visited the Hill uh, yesterday, I met... Uh, uh, many politicians from both parties, and I, 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 I saw broad support for Ukraine, but then, of course, there is this link to the border issue, which I respect is an important and difficult issue, but uh, I believe it's possible to find a way forward to support uh, Ukraine, uh, uh, regardless of how the, the border issue is uh, handled. Can I just say, what you're saying and what he's saying reminds me, and I've just had a flashback, of what European leaders tried to persuade Trump about the Iran nuclear deal they tr and, the, and the climate deal. They tried to persuade him not to pull out. And they thought that they could, and you all thought that you could talk sense. But it's MAGA and the Trump wing that are stopping this, right? I mean, by and large, yeah. linking it. You know, what is going to be the result if Ukraine... I mean, you're seeing what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. How do you assess what is happening on the ground? 
So I think one of my messages, well, I had a few messages to Americans. One was, we are with you. You are not on your own. And what was amazing to me was the absence of understanding that Europe has committed 160 billion of support for Ukraine. You know, Estonia has given all of its howitzers, Lithuania 1.6% of their GDP. So in terms of cost, that cost to Europe, let alone with refugee support, is far more significant. Secondly, the threat of Putin seems to have dropped off the political narrative in the US. You mentioned Iran, you mentioned Xi Jinping in China. You can pass any legislation you want and the commitment is there. So we were trying to remind them of the threat of Putin. You know, organisations like the Heritage Foundation drafting Trump's manifesto, they have been steadfastly anti-Putin all this time. Where's that gone in their calculations? And has it Trump- gone? It's, it's significantly disappeared, That's interesting I would about say. Yeah, um, and then the final argument was Ukraine is making progress. They have made enormous progress since September because they are up against the second or third biggest military mm-hmm. in the world. They are a small country at uh, their lives. They are doing an incredible job. And I really reject this almost Disney-esque hero story that's been produced where you hear Americans say, Ukraine needs to show me some progress. No, they don't. On a moral level, on a legal level or anything else, Ukraine has no duty to show progress to you or to me. They don't need to prove themselves. They are a sovereign country invaded by an irredentist neighbour who has their own ambitions of the history books. We need to give them enough not to survive, but we win. And what I was pleased with is that last year we went and we asked them to give a year-long supplemental. Don't just give three months. They've now got a year-long supplemental, but they need to pass it. Alicia Kearns, thank you so much. Thank you. thank you for being with us. Now, the devastation and humanitarian crisis that's befallen the people of Gaza, as we've been discussing here, have also galvanized the whole world, especially young people in America and elsewhere, as hundreds of thousands of Palestinians flee their homes that have been reduced to rubble. Reverend Frederick Haynes and black pastors across the United States have been lobbying for a ceasefire through open letters and in meetings with White House officials. And Haynes now speaks to Michelle Martin about the impact this could have on Palestinians and on U.S. politics. Reverend Haynes, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You are the senior pastor of a fairly large congregation in in Dallas. Would you just tell us a little bit about the people who are part of your congregation? Yes, uh, we have a congregation numerically in excess of uh, 10 to 12,000 members. On Sundays, we will see anywhere from uh, 2,000 to 4,000, and that's not to mention the online viewership, Mm -hmm. uh, which is much more. So uh, it's a growing congregation. It's also a young congregation and um, a vibrant congregation that is community conscious and very much in tune with the relationship between Jesus and justice. So I'm going to ask you to go back to October 7th. Do you remember what you preached on that Sunday? Because as I would imagine, especially given the congregation that you have, they would expect to hear from you, you know, at a time like that. Well, I do remember the theme uh, and that and and my intent, and that was to provide uh, some kind of balance. On the one hand, I wanted to ensure that uh, comfort uh, was provided to the victims' families and all who were triggered uh, by such an event. Uh, I have a couple of members who were in New York uh, on 9-11, and Mm -hmm. so I knew that there would be comparisons to 9-11. 
and the horrors and the evil that occurred on that day. Of course, uh, that language has been used uh, subsequent to October 7th. And so I felt it necessary to provide that kind of, uh, of consolation. At the same time, I found it necessary to make sure that we not make the mistakes that were made in response to 9-11 in response to October 7th. And by that, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I think history has recorded that uh, in the aftermath of 9-11, there was such a determination uh, to exact revenge uh, that the response was disproportionate and too many innocent lives were lost in response to 9-11. 9-11 was horrific. Uh, there is nothing that will ever uh, assuage what happened on that day. And so my prayer was, my sermon was, on the one hand, uh, let's offer comfort. At the same time, let's learn the lessons of history because it's well known if you do not learn from the past you end up repeating it and in many instances you magnify the mistakes that were made in the past and i take it the fears that you expressed in that sermon have in fact come to pass would that be fair to say from your perspective unfortunately yes it's it's been horrifying to watch uh the response again disproportionate and not downplaying in any way what happened October 7th. And I hope that we can erase the narrative uh, that you, just because you feel the response has been disproportionate, it does not mean that you are erasing uh, the memory of the horrors of what happened on October 7th. But again, uh, to see hospitals, uh, places of refuge being blown up. So yes, my worst fears have been realized and my worst fears are a living nightmare for those who are living in Gaza. You are one of more than a thousand black pastors in the U.S. who are calling on the Biden administration to support a ceasefire in the uh, in Israel's you know war on, on Hamas. How did this kind of organization, this decision to sort of make a statement as a group come to pass? How did that happen? Well, many of us, of course, are part of group text, and we began to express in our communication, our disgust with what was going on. And as the notifications increased, as the news broadcast uh, continued to uh, show the nightmare unfolding, uh, in what so many of us have labeled the Holy Land, uh, we became increasingly impatient with the response of this administration. And so what began as informal text messaging conversations going back and forth, uh, some of my beloved colleagues said, you know, there's no way that we can uh, just limit this conversation to our group text. We have to stand, we have to say something. We have, we have too many people who believe in us for us to be poor stewards of our leadership responsibility. And then on top of that, many of us have uh, inroads in the administration. And so uh, we asked for a meeting with the administration so that we could express 
our concerns in a way that was respectful, but at the same time reflecting a sense of urgency uh, over what we consider to be a state of emergency. You mentioned that uh, uh, a number of pastors have met with the administration, who they meet with. Right, it was representatives from the administration. It was not the president himself, uh, but representatives, those who uh, I would say are, uh, they have it. They they have authority, uh, but of course they are representatives. We felt we were heard, but at the same time we felt that in the aftermath of the meeting, business as usual continued, and so given that, uh, we felt that the only thing we had to do now was to look for ways to exert as much pressure as we could. Uh, from a moral perspective, uh, because that basically is what we are doing. You mentioned the 1,000 uh, pastors whose names were in the New York Times. Uh, since that particular piece occurred, I cannot tell you how many other pastors said, I wish you had included me. I wish you had reached out to me. Mm -hmm. So uh, the numbers are much more. Reverend Hayes, what do you, what do you think justice for Palestine means in this moment? You know, after everything that has already transpired, what is transpiring now, what, what do you think that means? And, and, the, and the second question to that would be, do you think justice for Palestine can coexist with security for Israel? Without question. My predecessor at Rainbow Push, the icon Reverend Jesse Jackson, uh, coined the phrase security for Israel, justice for Palestine. Of course, it's remixed during protests in the streets where we say no justice, no peace, because there is a relationship between justice and peace. There is a relationship between justice and security. And so I think when Reverend Jackson says security for Israel, justice for Palestine, of course, justice has a restorative component to it. Justice has a component to it that says we have to rebuild, we have to restore what has been broken. And so right now, justice for Palestine not only includes a ceasefire and the safe passage of humanitarian aid, but also rebuilding on the terms of the indigenous people, the land that has been destroyed restoring it to them, ensuring that they have their land on their terms. If they have their land on their terms that have been that has been rebuilt, the hospitals, the homes, the schools, all of them have to rebuild. Well what so so what exactly do you want President Biden to do? Because in fact, look, he has you know he famously you know went to Israel, the first sitting president to to visit Israel you know, at wartime, you know, he hugged the Prime Minister Netanyahu, but he also, and other members of the administration have also said what you've said, which is learn the lessons of 9-11, be proportionate in your response, don't seek vengeance. Well, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You can say that, but you continue to fund the carnage. Uh, we all know that this country gives a huge amount of resources to Israel that has gone to that has gone to fund a lot of what is taking place right now and so we have the moral authority but also the fiscal responsibility if we wear those two and say uh Mr Netanyahu 
we will no longer give you financial resources. We will no longer give you military resources and stand by watching the carnage unfold. That is a profound statement. It's one thing to talk it, it's another thing to walk it and exert it. Is there any part of you that worries that the criticism of President Biden makes it easier for former President Trump to get back into office? Of course, and I'm asking Mr. Biden, to learn the lessons of history. 1968, Lyndon Baines Johnson had done some amazing things domestically. We have, because of Lyndon Baines Johnson, the 64 Civil Rights Bill, the 65 Voting Rights Bill, some wonderful things took place, but his foreign policy disrupted the country in such a way that it set the stage for another administration to come in. And they came in, ironically, on a Southern strategy that was race-based, a Southern strategy that was white supremacy fueled. And I'm simply asking Mr. Biden, as you proudly call yourself a Zionist, as you proudly say uh, you stand by Israel almost by any means necessary, that is offensive to too many, first of all, from a humanitarian perspective, but then you have Palestinians living right here in this country who are offended uh, by what, by the stance of Mr. Biden. And so, yes, Mr. Biden has done some good things that cannot be denied. In this instance, I'm concerned that he's getting in his own way. And when he gets in his way, he may well be getting in the way of the future of democracy or the lack thereof in this country. Some people look at the same history you just cited and draw the opposite conclusion. The progressive left having abandoned LBJ is what paved the way for a, 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 a Richard Nixon who had zero sympathy for and interest in their goals. Right. But there are those who would say, you know, that's exactly why you need to put aside those feelings and support this president because because his the, the alternative is worse, who has zero sympathy for the, right. the Palestinian cause and and most other things that progressives care about. And and what do you say to that? Yeah, I say that exactly. Uh, the other side would be disastrous. Uh, as a matter of fact, it would be multiplied. Uh, what is going on right now? That cannot be denied. I also will clap back and say it's not that uh, the center left abandoned LBJ. LBJ abandoned the principles and values of the center left. And we're saying right now, Mr. Biden has abandoned the principles of redeeming the soul of America. He's abandoned the center left. And so we're calling him back. Learn the lessons of history, Mr. President. Are your congregants specifically talking about the election year and, and you know, uh, the fact that it is an election year? Does that come up in your conversations? And are they are they talking to you about Trump? And are they talking to you about Biden? And if so, what do they what do they say? Oh, without question. Uh, and this is the earliest, I've been pastoring 40 years, so I've seen a number of presidential election years. This is the earliest that I have experienced an energized conversation about the election I've ever experienced. And I have to be honest, it's, it's I won't say it's frightening, but it's concerning 
uh, in light of the stubbornness that is perceived as it relates to the administration and their posture uh, in the Middle East. And so I'm hearing conversations and there are those who are saying, oh, I'm going to vote. Uh, and I'm not crazy enough to vote the other side. I'm not going to vote for Mr. Biden. Uh, I'll go third party. Well, my clap back is, well, they don't have enough money to mount a serious threat. And so a vote for a third party is a vote for uh, who you really, really don't want. And so that escalates the conversation. Well, I'm still not going to vote for uh, mm. Mr. Biden. And, uh, you know, so... It's, I mean, the conversations are, how should I put it? Uh, the temperature is a lot higher than it normally is uh, because there are those who are really, really concerned. I also have uh, members who will say, uh, well, it's back to voting for the lesser of two evils. I hope Mr. Biden does not want to be considered the lesser of two evils, but that's what many are saying. You know, at the start of the war, there was this poll taken by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. It found that 48 percent of black respondents said at that time that they didn't feel connected to either the Israeli or Palestinian side or plight, I, I guess I would say. Yeah. Do you think that that's changed? Oh, without question, uh, that has changed, uh, especially I would wonder if that poll involved or engaged young people, because when I look at the young people in my congregation and in the community, the young people are on fire because, again, this is a generation that on their cell phones, they have notifications coming at them all of the time. And those notifications, I promise you, continue to enrage what they see as this country being complicit in what is going on because they feel a connection with what is happening to the Palestinians. So and, and why uh, is that? Why do you think that is? They can also relate to because we are only uh, three and a half years removed from the summer of George Floyd. We are only three and a half years removed from Breonna Taylor and what happened to uh, so many uh, during that summer where we saw in real time such horrors. And so you're talking about a, a, a response from the world community, especially young people in the world community, to the horrors they saw in the United States that was taking place. And I promise you, the, that same that same demographic, yeah. they have a moral compass, a moral consciousness that says with Martin King Jr., injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. If you don't have justice for all, there's not justice at all. As we are as we are sitting now, 30,000 people, at, le at, at least 30,000 people have already been killed. Yeah. And, you know, huge swaths of the Gaza Strip have already been destroyed. And hundreds of thousands of people have already been displaced. And I just wonder in, in some ways, is it is it almost too late? Well, I believe it's not too late. Uh, I think it becomes too late if this lingers. It becomes too late if we do not, in a responsible way, negotiate healing, a healing process to a strip that has been devastated and broken. Uh, it's time for America to step up and provide moral, clear leadership 
And if that takes place and healing begins, then the good news is things can turn around. But healing, and I must say this, must be on the terms of those who have been broken, those who have been hurt, and not on our terms, imputing what we think healing is as an empire that participated in so much of the brokenness. Reverend Frederick Hayes III, thank you so much for speaking with us today. And thank you. And finally, we end tonight on a different note, remembering one of Broadway's brightest lights. Cheetah Rivera, who died peacefully on Tuesday, she was 91, originating roles in iconic musicals like Chicago and West Side Story. Rivera was beloved by the nation, receiving the special Tony Lifetime Achievement Award and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. In light of her passing, President Biden named this triple threat singer, dancer, actor, quote, an all-time great of American musical theater. While Puerto Rican actress Rita Moreno called Rivera the essence of Broadway. That is it for now. And we want to leave you with this clip of Rivera on the Judy Garland show in the 1960s, doing what she always did best, performing a cover of a 1935 folk song, I Got Plenty of Nothing. Thanks for watching. Goodbye from London. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.